everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Steve Gillen on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Kennedy Assassination, 24 Hours After, Lyndon B. Johnson's Pivotal First Day as President. There are many, many books on the Kennedy assassination. We've even interviewed the authors of some of them here on New Books in History. Almost all of them focus on the question of who shot Kennedy and why. This book's different. It focuses on the transition of power from Kennedy to Johnson in the period immediately before, during, and after the assassination. And it is a fascinating story, largely because the central character, the protagonist, so to say, is Lyndon Baines Johnson, who is fascinating in every way. He's a man of many contradictions, and they all are on full display during the moments after the assassination. Steve does a terrific job of telling the story, and it's no wonder because he has been closely associated with the History Channel for a long time and has helped them bring history to the small screen. I should also tell you that this particular book has been made into a two-hour documentary that uh, will air soon on a local station, again on the History Channel. I really enjoyed talking to Steve today, and I applaud his work in attempting to make history more accessible to people, serious history, history such as he does. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Steve. Hey, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing great in uh, rainy New York. Yes, you're in Manhattan, aren't you? <laughs> I'm in Manhattan, and we have a nor'easter coming this weekend. A nor'easter. I don't think most of our um, listeners probably know what a nor'easter is, but it's a big storm. I used to live there, and, uh, and you yeah. guys are in for it, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, high winds. It's, you know, less than a hurricane, but uh, it's a lot of rain, a lot of wind. It's not a uh, a good time to be outdoors. So it's a great time to be in my apartment talking to you about my book. That's terrific. Well, I should tell our listeners that we have Steve Gillen on the show today, and we'll be talking about his extraordinarily readable and page-turning book, The Kennedy Assassination, 24 Hours After, Lyndon B. Johnson's pivotal first day as office. I always want to call him LBJ. As everybody will know who listens to this podcast, I read these books before I talk to the people who wrote them. <laughs> Steve's laughing because he's been interviewed by people who don't. <laughs> yeah, and I can tell you this book really is a page turner. Um, it, it, uh, it really draws you in. I was reading it until very late last night and, um, my my wife kept telling me you go to bed, and I'm like, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. But it really, it really, it really is fascinating and, and full of interesting little details and things that we didn't know about the Kennedy assassination and about the weird and wacky personality of Lyndon Baines Johnson, which we'll talk about a lot uh, uh, in the um, he very fascinating, absolutely fascinating figure in the in the hour to come. So, Steve, why don't you begin by just telling us a few words about yourself? Sure. Well, I uh, grew up in Philadelphia um, and uh, thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. But uh, and when I was playing baseball in college, I realized that there weren't that many five foot eight pitchers with sixty five mile an hour fastball. So I um, I was inspired by a wonderful teacher uh, named Lawrence Buck uh, who. Um, was teaching a class in medieval history, and back then, you know, I, for me, medieval history was everything before the New Deal. <laughs> um, and I realized uh, he opened my eyes to history and the study of history, and I, for the first time, became a serious student. I was a lousy student in high school. I failed three out of five subjects my senior year in high school. I ranked in the bottom probably 10% of a graduating class at 850, and I was accepted to Widener College on probation. And I'm one of those stories of someone who was truly inspired by a professor, by a teacher, uh, who um, uh, made me excited about learning, and especially about history. So I went on and um, uh, went, decided to go to graduate school. I went to Brown University, um, where I worked with uh, James T. Patterson, uh, and did a, uh, my dissertation on the American for Democratic Action, which is a liberal group in post-war America. And even in the uh, the depths of the job market in the 1980s, I was incredibly lucky and got a wonderful job at Yale. And I taught at Yale University for um, uh, nine years. Uh, I left Yale in 90, 1994, I think it was, and went to uh, Oxford uh, and taught at Oxford for three years. And then I was asked to go to Oklahoma to set up an honors college, uh, which I did. And did that for a few years, and and I'm still at Oklahoma, um, but no longer dean. I'm just a faculty member. And and the under the other theme here is that at one point, way back when I was at Yale, I got a call from these people who were starting this new television network called the History Channel, uh, 
and they asked me if I would come and, and do some shows, to, uh, just do some talking head things for them, which I did. And they liked what I was doing, and over the next couple of years, they asked me to do more and more, and then finally they uh, gave me my own show called History Center, which I did for some nine years. And mm-hmm. and uh, now I have the title of resident historian at the History Channel, and I host TV shows and, and do specials and do consulting for them. So um, I've been really I've, – I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to um, – I have wonderful jobs in the academy while also being involved in, in sort of the public role of history and trying to bring history to a larger public, which is something I think is very important. And I know it's something that you think is important as well. And I, and I think shows like this are play a, a, a key role in that process. How did you um, come to write this particular book? You know, I, my original idea was to do a book called 24 Hours. And, and again, this is, you'll appreciate this. Uh, being involved in, in television, uh, I'm always looking for ways of of making history interesting to non non scholars, to making history interesting for the broader public. And my favorite TV show is 24, mm-hmm. uh, the Fox show with Kiefer Sutherland, where he goes around and solves these crises. And it's done the the sort of the the unique structure of the show is that it's it's set up to be a 24 hour period. So I'm thinking, is there a way to take that concept that which works so well in, in commercial television and apply it to history to be able to tell historical stories in a dramatic way? So my original idea was to do a book of a series of case studies where you would take 24 hours um, in some dramatic turning point moment in American history and follow a decision maker, follow one person as they grapple with some major crisis. Because I always wondered, for example, like, what did Roosevelt do? Well, Roosevelt's sitting in a study on Sunday afternoon, December 7, 1941, and he picks up the phone and finds out that Pearl Harbor has been attacked. Now, what does he do? What's the first thing you do? I mean, I know, I know what I would do. I would hyperventilate and pass out. But, you know, <laughs> Roosevelt shouldn't have the luxury of doing that. So my original idea was to take a, a series of these case studies. So I spent months, actually, developing this idea. I went to all the presidential libraries looking for case studies and uh, uh, moments. And, and, and it's key. You have to find a moment that's, that has a dramatic sort of um, event uh, where you where there's a sense of action and, and uh, it can't be just someone sitting around on the phone talking on the phone. It has to be a decision maker who is actively involved in trying to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. So I came up with about six or seven of those examples, and I went around and talked to publishers. and And um, what I was what I was told was that that. Um, that some of the stories were so dramatic and so interesting that uh, the suggestion was that I develop uh, them as individual stories rather than as a, a series of case studies. And and um, at basic, it was suggested I I take um, the the assassination one, which was the most dramatic one, and develop that into a book and and. Um, and then, and possibly develop others after that. And I'm, you know, fortunately because of my relationship with the History Channel, the History Channel was also interested in the subject. So it's both a, a I've, what I've come up with is, is the book, uh, and the history, I've also served as the executive producer of a two hour, uh, primetime special on the History Channel that's based on the book. So, uh, uh, the, the, the idea is to, to come up with these, uh, these moments that are instructive, that are important historical moments, but to develop formats that are new and interesting and that allow us to tell the story and reach a much broader public. Yeah, no, I think that's extraordinarily well said, and I applaud that effort. One of the things that I try to do is get history out of um, texts, that is, uh, books and articles, and put it in formats that people would more enjoy uh, uh, re- listening to or watching, and so they, you know, and film is the obvious candidate here. Uh, vid- video, right. video is the way things are going. Um, it's yeah. a wonder that YouTube is uh, one of the most popular, yeah, uh, one of the most popular uh, websites on the web. I, I make short films myself. I haven't made anything very long, but I think it's absolutely terrific. It's, it's unfortunate that we don't have more resources of this type so that other historians could do this. But you know, you're kind of. Um, Blazing a new trail here, which which is which is terrific. When can we see this special on the History Channel? The show premieres on the History Channel on Sunday night, October 18th at um, at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, um, and it's a two-hour uh, uh, special. And it's it's an, I think it's really well done. The uh, uh, the network hired a, an Emmy Award-winning producer uh, who. Uh, 
uh, tells a story that's faithful to the book, but also has its own dramatic flair. And I think it's it's really well done. It's good history. Um, and uh, you know, when you write a book, uh, if you're lucky, you'll you know you'll reach ten thousand, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand people. You know, on the History Channel, and, and at that time slot, you can reach 1.5 or 2 yeah. million people, and um, and I think there's this, there's a relationship between the two. You know, I think you're absolutely right that 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 people, especially young people today, respond more to visual images, whether it be film or or documentary, or but but that can also inspire people to go and read more, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that's sort of the the um, a relationship that that's important to nurture is that. You know, if a million people or two million people watch this show, maybe they'll be interested in the subject and and go out and read my book. Obviously, I want them to read my book, but read other books about the subject as well. And I and that's the key is to try to ignite people's imaginations and their interest in history so that they go out and read more about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what this show is all about, basically, to introduce. Um, new audiences to books that they might, on authors that they might want to read, such as yourself. So let's talk right. about the uh, book. Uh, this is a book about uh, the 24-hour period around JFK's assassination and then the assumption of power by Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, let me begin with this question. Uh, what sort of relationship did uh, Johnson and Kennedy have? Prior Kennedy, to Dallas, yes, they had a they had a respectful relationship. There was there was one reason why Lyndon Johnson was vice president. That's because John Kennedy wanted him to be uh, his vice presidential um, uh, nominee, running mate. Uh, Johnson was opposed by just about everyone else who was close to JFK, and especially JFK's brother Robert Kennedy, who became the Attorney General. Uh, but uh, John Kennedy, President Kennedy, was um, was shrewd and pragmatic, and he understood that as a a Catholic from uh, senator from Massachusetts, he needed both a Protestant and someone from the South, and and uh, ideally from a key state in the South to be on the ticket with him. So he, even though uh, most of the people around him detested Lyndon Johnson, and he thought Lyndon Johnson was uh, something of an odd. Duck, although he respected Johnson for his hard, how uh, hard he worked and his dedication and his skill as a legislator, uh, he was worried about, he was also worried if he left Johnson in the Senate that he would end up sabotaging a lot of his legislation if he ended up winning. So Kennedy made the choice to make Lyndon Johnson his, um, his nominee. And then after they won, Johnson wanted to be the second in command. Johnson took the vice presidency because he believed that he could transform what had been really a dormant office and turn it into a power center for him and that he could be the assistant president. But not long after they took office, it was, became clear that Robert Kennedy was going to play that role, and Johnson was really relegated to, to uh, sort of a, a mar- he was marginalized in the administration, which was a source of tremendous uh, 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 anger and, and frustration for Johnson. And and so what you have during these first couple of years is is Kennedy really I think genuinely wanted to use Johnson, but didn't really know quite how to, and and the people around him were so antagonistic to Johnson that and Johnson became just so dour and so depressed and and Kennedy just simply he said at one point that he couldn't stand to see that hound dog expression on Lyndon's face every day so he was I think it was uh, George Smathers Smathers the um, uh, he was Kennedy was in the pool swimming and he was telling Smathers about how he just can't stand to look at Johnson's face anymore and Smathers said well send him abroad let him be a you know a roving ambassador. It'll feed his ego and it'll get him out of Washington. And Kennedy says that's a great idea. So Johnson spends most of the time as he's vice president, a lot of his time traveling abroad, um, and he's doing it not because Kennedy needs him to travel abroad. He just wants to get Johnson out of Washington. Um, so by the time you get to the summer and fall of 1963, Kennedy's gearing up for the campaign in '64, and Dallas, Texas, is obviously going to be a key battleground state and there's this battle going on within the state Texas had been you know as much of the south a solidly democratic uh, state which was becoming increasingly more 
Republican and conservative. Race obviously was playing a key role, and there was a struggle within the Democratic Party in Texas between uh, Senator Ralph Yarborough, who was a, the leader of the insurgent liberal wing, and Governor John Conley, who was a Johnson, Johnson protege, um, who uh, was uh, leading the conservative forces um, uh, in the state, which really had a lot of momentum. And Kennedy realized he needed both in order to win in, in 1964, and he was really hoping that Johnson would take care of the situation, but it was clear that um, uh, that the situation was getting worse. So Kennedy decides to go to Texas um, for two reasons. One is just for politics to sort of get a sense of what the situation was in Texas to make a to show the flag in the state, but also to raise money. He thinks Texas is a good place to um, to uh, to get some. There's a lot of Texas oil money down there, and he, he figures he could feed the coffers of the Democratic Party. So Johnson doesn't really want him to go. Um, Johnson uh, would prefer that Kennedy leave Texas to him, and Johnson would just prefer that they just side with John Connolly, cut Yarborough out, and he thinks that they can control Texas that way. But Kennedy insists on going to Texas against Johnson's uh, wishes, and that sets the backdrop, really, for, for, the, uh, for the November trip. Mm -hmm. So uh, take us through the November trip. Where do they land, and what do they plan to do, and is the plan followed? Yeah, the plan, it's a quick trip. You know, originally Kennedy wants to just go to Texas and, um, and raise a lot of money. And Connolly, uh, convinces him, convinces him that he can't do that. That if he goes to Texas and just goes to a bunch of fundraisers, most Texans are going to think he just, uh, went there for money and doesn't really care about the state. So, uh, they, after a lot of negotiation, they agree that uh, Kennedy will make a series of stops in a, in a couple of cities. They fly in on Thursday, on November 21st. Uh, there's um, a, a couple of events on Thursday. There's an event in uh, Fort Worth. They fly to Fort Worth on Thursday night. There's a uh, a meeting a, uh, in the parking lot outside the Chamber of Commerce uh, breakfast where Kennedy and Connolly and Johnson are all standing there. Then there's a Chamber of Commerce breakfast in, in Fort Worth. And then they get on the plane and, and fly to Dallas. And Kennedy's strategy all along was to to be seen by as many people as possible. So, uh, so Fort Worth, you've been to Texas, Fort Worth and Dallas are, you know, they're very close to each other. Um, but, and the original idea, the original plan was that Kennedy would, they would, um, uh, they could drive from Fort Worth to Dallas, but Kennedy wanted to fly so he could get there in time for a lunchtime rally so they could go through downtown Dallas. The idea was to be seen by as many people as possible. And as a part of that, Kennedy insisted that um, that the Secret Service agents um, uh, keep the distance from him. He wanted to ride in an open limousine. Um, he wanted to be seen by the crowds. And the other thing that was unique about the trip is that uh, he was accompanied by Jackie Kennedy. Uh, who this was the first uh, campaign trip that she had been on since the 1960 presidential campaign. She had lost her son, Patrick. Uh, they had lost their son, Patrick, that previous August. She had really been in seclusion since then, and this was her coming out trip. She, she understood that it was important to her husband, and even though she did not like uh, campaigning and politics, she decided to go on this trip. And Kennedy understood. Kennedy wanted her to come on the trip because she could neutralize a lot of the bad feeling. It's interesting if you look at. I went back and looked at all the newspaper accounts and and from the the uh, news the uh, papers in in Texas and Houston and in, in, uh, in Fort Worth and and in Dallas. Uh, writing about the trip, and a lot of people are saying, you know, I don't, I'd never go to an event to see the president, but I'll go to see the first lady. Um, and Kennedy understood that her that she had this charisma and this charm that she could neutralize a lot of these hard political feelings in Texas that uh, that were directed toward him. And a lot of them, you know, Kennedy was perceived as a liberal by certainly by Texas standards by by the fall of 1963. And the big issue was civil rights. He had come out in favor of civil rights in his famous June 11th speech. Uh, that summer, uh, the the Conley wing of the Democratic Party in Texas was strongly opposed to uh, what would 
become the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So Kennedy understood that there were some real hard political feelings and, and opposition, and he believed that by having Jackie with him that he could help neutralize uh, some of these feelings, and that um, and he could, as he often did, sort of charm his way through some uh, to navigate some of these these difficult political issues. So. So you end up in Dallas. They arrive at uh, Love Field in Dallas um, at a, a little before noon, and uh, and someone says that Dave Powers, who was Kennedy's one of Kennedy's closest aides and friends, said that when they got off the plane, they looked like Mr. Miss, Mr. and Mrs. America. Mm-hmm. Um, Jackie in that memorable pillbox hat and the pink suit and and uh, Kennedy tanned and 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 vibrant. Um, and they shook hands, and they were on their way to the trademark um, uh, in the motorcade, this long motorcade, um, and making their way. They wind. They, they even the route that they took. It wasn't a direct route from the airport. I actually drove it. I went to Love Field mm-hmm. and got in a car and drove the the can the route that the entire motorcade went. And they went. This it's a roundabout way that they went because they wanted to go through downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, during lunchtime, so again, so, so that they get maximum visibility, um, and they were pretty much near the end of the uh, the motorcade. They actually had come through the downtown area there, and if you've been to Dallas, Dealey Plaza is right before you get onto the um, the highway, and the trademark is a minute, two minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and what's interesting about the Johnson side, what What's different about this book, I should probably say, is that, that most of the books that have been written about the Kennedy assassination, you could fill a library with these books. Uh, they focus on one question, and that is who shot JFK? Mm-hmm. Now, where did the bullets come from? Was there a shooter in the grassy knoll? Was Oswald a patsy? And I really am not interested in that question. That's mm-hmm. not what this book is about. This book is about the transfer of power that takes place after the assassination. It's about presidential leadership. It's about Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about you know it's, it's about how does a president deal with this um, unprecedented crisis. And this is the most dramatic and violent transfer of political power in American history. So that's really what I'm focusing on. I don't. People who are looking for uh, new information about the assassination itself uh, will find it that in other books they won't find it here. Um, uh, this is really about what happens in the minutes and hours after the shooting and how Lyndon Johnson deals with the the crisis and and and, and the transfer of power that takes place after the assassination. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of interesting details about the uh, assassination itself. Let's begin with that. Uh, okay. Now, uh, if I recall correctly, um, Kennedy uh, is in the second car in the motorcade, and That's right. the, the shots um, are fired at exactly 12:30. Is that correct? The first shot is is, is at 12:30, uh-huh. um, and uh, and this is this is really sort of the I'm accepting the major outlines of the Warren Commission describing what took place. And three shots. Um, uh, the first shot misses. The second shot is what um, a lot of um, assassination. Um, uh, uh, buffs refer to as the, the magic bullet. Uh, the second bullet, uh, according to the Warren Commission, uh, enters Kennedy um, in the back, upper back, exits through his throat, uh, hits Governor Connolly, fractures his rib, um, and uh, uh, his his wrist, and ends up in his leg. This is sort of the, um, and then the third bullet um, is the um, the fatal bullet that strikes Kennedy in the head. Um, and what's what's interesting is, from my perspective, is is what Lyndon Johnson is doing. Lyndon Johnson is you have the Kennedy limousine. Then you have a Secret Service car, uh, which has the uh, the major sort of contingent of, of the Secret Service agents protecting the president. The president, there were only Roy Kellerman was in the car. The presidential limousine has a driver, Secret Service driver, Roy Kellerman, who was the President Kennedy's um, uh, main Secret Service uh, agent. You had Governor Connolly and Nellie Connolly in the jump seats, and then you had President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy in the back seat. Mm-hmm. The Secret Service car, the follow-up car, had 
all the other Secret Service agents that protect the president, and also Day Powers and Kenny O'Donnell, two of the president's closest aides. And the car right behind that is the car carrying Lyndon Johnson. That has a a uh, Dallas policeman who's a driver. Um, Rufus Youngblood is in the uh, the front passenger seat. He is um, uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, Secret Service agent. In the back seat, you have Ralph Yarborough. Um, uh, uh, you have Mrs. Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson in the middle, and then uh, uh, LBJ is sitting on behind Ruf, directly behind Rufus Youngblood. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the first bullet fires, and no one knows what it is, most people assume it's a firecracker. Um, then no one, Johnson himself says that he didn't know what it was, it, and he said he'd been in so many motorcades in his life over the years that you always hear backfire from motorcycles, especially when they're going at a fairly slow speed. The motorcycles produce a lot of backfire, and that's what Johnson assumed it was. It was probably backfire from a motorcycle. He didn't think anything of it. But Ruf, and he can't see. The presidential limousine has already made the turn, uh, so Johnson can't see Kennedy at all. He doesn't see what's taking place in front of him. But Rufus Youngblood, who's sitting in the front seat, as soon as he hears the bullet, the first that first shot, he looks around and he doesn't know what. He doesn't initially think it's a bullet, uh, rifle fire, but he sees people ducking um, on the grassy knoll, and he he doesn't see Kennedy, but he sees what he considers unusual movements in the presidential car. So he yells get down and Johnson doesn't move so young blood before the second shot is fired leaps over the front seat grabs Lyndon Johnson six foot four Lyndon Johnson and throws him to the floor of the car and sits on top of him so Johnson is on the floor of his car when he hears bam bam so he hears this this the the sound and then he feels the car accelerate mm-hmm. uh, and what happens is the first four cars the the lead car the president's car the president's follow up secret service car the Johnson car and Johnson's follow secret follow up secret service car break away from the rest of the motorcade and speed at seventy miles an hour. Uh, on the highway, they go right past the trademark on their way to Parkland Hospital. Now, Johnson, the other thing, uh, which was interesting, a little detail that I discovered was um, uh, that Johnson, when Kennedy had stopped the motorcade along the way to get out and shake hands, Johnson seemed, Yarborough said that Johnson seemed annoyed uh, that uh, that the motorcade was stopping. So he had the driver turn the radio up so that he could listen to the local coverage of the motorcade while he was in the motorcade. And uh, so they're I'm just imagine this scene. They're speeding to the hospital, 70 miles an hour, taking some of these sharp turns where the car practically goes up on two wheels, an open limousine, uh, the wind blowing fast, the radio is blaring. So there's just Johnson's on the floor of the car. He doesn't know what's going on. So Youngblood says to him, you know, we it's possible that the president has been injured. You know, you may have to. Uh, serve as president. You know, we, we're gonna go to, we're going to the hospital, that's all I know, uh, and when we get there, you need to, um, we're gonna escort you quickly from the car. Do you understand? And Johnson says, yes, partner, or okay, partner, he says. Mm-hmm. But Johnson doesn't know anything at this point. Johnson mm-hmm. doesn't know that the president's been hit. He doesn't know whether, what the nature of his injuries are. Um, so they get to Parkland Hospital, and Johnson's car pulls up within seconds of the Kennedy limousine. And at this point, Kennedy's just a few feet away from Lyndon Johnson. He's cradled, Jackie is cradling him in his arms, and he is, for all practical purposes, dead. But when they arrive, uh, the, a group of Secret Service agents surround Johnson. So he never sees the presidential limousine. Lady Bird, who's following quickly behind, peeks over, and she says what she sees is the, the pink of Jackie's um, uh, dress as she's bent over her husband. So she has a better sense that something has really happened. But Lyndon knows nothing, and the agents take him in. They get to Parkland Hospital, and they were there within a couple of minutes. So Parkland Hospital wasn't prepared for them. Uh, Emery Roberts, who was the shift supervisor, leads the way, and they, 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 we have to realize the assumption is that Johnson's next. That at this point, 
they assume that this was an effort to decapitate the American government. The mm-hmm. Secret Service, I mean, it's part of their job to, to, to assume worst-case scenario. So they're assuming that this was a part of an international conspiracy, the Soviets behind it, the Cubans behind it, somebody's behind it, and they're trying to decapitate the American government, and they're taking advantage of this moment when you have both the president and the vice president in an open motorcade, and there's another, either that the same gunman is out there waiting to take a shot at Johnson, or there's someone else who's been assigned to take Johnson out. And they also realize that the route to the, I mean, Rufus Youngblood realizes that the route to the um, hospital would be pretty obvious to, to uh, a gunman. So, which is why he had kept Johnson on the floor the entire way. Um, and once they get to the hospital, they want to get Johnson isolated so and cut off. So they put him in minor medical, which is um, – I've been to Parkland Hospital. It's been sort of completely refigured, so it's hard to get a sense of space and how far away minor medical was from the emergency room where John's where Kennedy was being worked on, but it wasn't very far. It's you know, it's a slightly it's a different wing of the same hospital. Um and Johnson is put in booth thirteen in minor medical and uh, he walks into this room, there's a you know, a, a metal table, examination table and, and uh two small chairs and it's it's Lyndon Johnson, Ladybird, Rufus Youngbud who's who's by Johnson's side the entire day and Emory Roberts initially. Emory Roberts comes in within a few minutes. But, you know, there's this tragedy unfolding just a few feet away where the president, everyone who, everyone who witnessed that third shot, and, you know, you can get a sense of the violence of that shot from the Zabruder film, and anyone who saw President Kennedy at the hospital, it was pretty obvious that he, that even if they were, the doctors were some, be able to perform some miracle and keep him alive, he could not serve as president anymore. But it's important to understand that Lyndon Johnson didn't know that at this point. Mm-hmm. Then Lyndon Johnson knows nothing at this point. So what did they do with Johnson at this point? They put Johnson in the room, um, and uh, Johnson wants to find out. He wants to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, Johnson, um, Emery Roberts is the first Secret Service agent to... Uh, now, Emery Roberts was in the follow-up car. He saw the bullet strike President Kennedy's head. When they arrived in Parkland Hospital, Emory Roberts jumps out of the follow-up car and goes up to the presidential limousine and to see what the president's condition was. Although it's another agent, uh, Clint, um, was Clint, um, Clint Hill. Clint Hill. Yeah. Clint Hill had, uh, he's the one you've seen as a Bruder film who runs out of the car and jumps onto the back and pushes Jackie back in. And he had, um, turned around to the agents in the follow-up car and given them the thumb sound sign. Yeah. Which gave them a pretty good indication that Kennedy was, was dead. But Roberts wanted to, he needed to see for himself. So he goes to the, the presidential limousine and Jackie is cradling her husband and she won't let him go. And, uh, she says he's dead. You know, he's dead. And, and Robert says, you know, I need to look at the president. I need to see him. And she doesn't let go, but he lifts her arm up and she sees, he sees the head wound. And he says, I'm going to Johnson. And Roberts, one of the things I should point out is that, uh, among the, um, the sources that I was able to get access to were the Manchester family, the family of William Manchester gave me access to all of William Manchester's interview notes, uh, with all the major players and, and Rufus Youngblood. Uh, so I had you, I have, um, Emory Roberts' um, testimony for the Warren Commission, a internal Secret Service um, report that uh, that was done, that's been declassified, the Manchester interview, um, and and Emory Roberts is very consistent in all of his interviews, which he gives over a period of years about what, exactly what happened. And what was fascinating to me is he goes in; he's the first person to go into minor medical at booth thirteen. The, he, he has seen the president, he saw him get shot, he's seen his head wound. He knows he's dead. He says to William Manchester, um, Johnson didn't know what I knew, which is that Kennedy was dead. Mm-hmm. But what Emory Roberts does, what I, what's, what's puzzling to me is that when Roberts, Roberts gives Johnson his first report, and what he says to him is, I have seen the president's wound, I don't think he can survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he assured him that Governor, he told him that Governor Connolly had been hit, uh, but that Mrs. Kennedy and, uh, Nellie Connolly were, uh, were okay. Um, but he doesn't say the obvious. He doesn't, the obvious is that Kennedy is dead or that the president has sustained a massive head wound. He can no longer function as president. You need to function as president. But he does give him the right advice. He says, you need to get in the air. We need to get you out of Parkland Hospital, 
on Air Force One. We don't know whether this is an international conspiracy, but the, the one place where we can protect you is the White House. We need to get you to the White House now. Mm-hmm. And Rufus Youngblood is repeating it. I mean, it's, you get the impression they're in his face. They're in Johnson's face. Like, you need to get out of here now. Mm-hmm. But Johnson says no. Johnson refuses to leave, and I think there's a variety, there's a variety of reasons. Uh, I think it's sort of, a, he's a, Johnson's a complicated man, so there's a, there are complicated reasons for why he doesn't leave. I think he genuinely wants to know what the condition of the president is. He doesn't, um, he, uh, and he doesn't want to leave Jackie behind. He wants to know, he just, he feels he'd be abandoning them if he just ran out. Um, but I think he also, um, uh, in the back of his mind, he he's worried about the issue of, of uh, succession and about uh, him be, about becoming president. He's paranoid about Robert Kennedy, and and he said later in a in a phone interview in the, uh, that was taped that all he thought about those first couple of days was how Robert Kennedy was going to try to do something, try to steal the presidency from him. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to think that Johnson, Johnson and Kennedy had this. Uh, arrangement, which eventually became uh, the 25th Amendment, was similar to the arrangement that Eisenhower and um, and Nixon had about about when the vice president would assume the powers of the presidency, and um, the uh, the Kennedys amended the Eisenhower agreement in one significant way. They said that um, the original agreement that Eisenhower and Nixon had was that the the vice president, in the event the president was not able to notify him of a disability, the vice president would need to get uh, the cabinet to uh, I think a majority of the cabinet to uh, approve of him taking over the power, the vice president taking over the powers of the presidency. In the agreement that Kennedy and Johnson had, it it uh, the, it was also made clear that the vice president had to consult the attorney general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the attorney general happened to be Robert Kennedy <laughs> and the man who absolutely detested Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to think that Johnson is thinking about this. Is this going to be another Edith Wilson situation? It would, he wanted to know if Kennedy was going to die, he wanted to... Um, he wanted to know for sure, and he wanted to hear it from Kenny O'Donnell, who was the president's closest aide, and the, I mean, he was his official title was appointment secretary, but he was really sort of a de facto chief of staff. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's this there's a standoff in those first couple of minutes. Lyndon Johnson will not leave Parkland Hospital until he knows for sure that Kennedy is dead, and he is told that Kennedy is dead by Kenny O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. But Kenny O'Donnell. I mean, this man is just an extraordinary burden that's just been been uh, been laid on him. I mean, he has watched. We think today of these political consultants, you know, people who work for candidates and they 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 work forever, pays the most amount of money, and they move on. They work for one candidate, and another one. You know, Kenny O'Donnell and the people around President Kennedy loved him. They respected him. They loved him. They had been with him. O'Donnell had been with him since his Senate campaign in '52, and he had just watched him. He was he saw he was 15 feet away. He saw his head get blown off. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now in the hospital, and he's O'Donnell detests Lyndon Johnson, but he's also he just watched his this man who he admired and loved get violent, be, be shot. Um, and he he's in denial. Mm-hmm. He's in denial that Kennedy is dead, but he's also in denial that Lyndon Johnson um, is now going to be the next the president of the United States. So I think there's this psychological standoff that that uh, explains this. What I think is an inexcusable gap um, in informing Lyndon Johnson about Kennedy's condition. At one point, what Johnson says to Emory Roberts is, "I want Kenny O'Donnell." And Emory Roberts, I want to talk to Kenny O'Donnell. So, so Emory Roberts walks out of Minor Medical, and again, we're talking about minutes here. You know, they mm-hmm. they arrive at Parkland Hospital about 12:37 or so. Uh, all the times are approximate because if you look at all the reports, everybody has a different time. There's no one's really keeping track of time, and people's watches aren't synchronized. Mm-hmm. But between 12:35 and 12:37, they arrive at Parkland Hospital. So this is all taking place within the first five to seven minutes um, that 
Johnson gets reports from Emory Roberts. He tells Emory Roberts to go find Kenny O'Donnell. He wants to hear from Kenny O'Donnell. Kenny O'Donnell is pacing outside the uh, the emergency room. He's trying to take care of Mrs. Kennedy, uh, who he's obviously very concerned about. He's he realizes that that Kennedy. He thinks there's he's when the doctors he sees the doctors running around asking for blood and transfusions. You know he thinks there's one in a hundred chance that maybe they can save his life. But he's seen he knows how how bad the condition is. But what's interesting is that. O'Donnell eventually walks down to Johnson, and he says that um, uh, the president's in a bad way. Mm-hmm. You know, when it strikes me as a, an understatement, yes. <laughs> um, the president was in a bad way. The president was dead. Yeah. Uh, and if even if he was clinically not dead, he clearly was not could no longer serve as president. Mm-hmm. So why doesn't, you know, why doesn't, and, uh, and Roy Kellerman, the head of the Secret Service, goes down and says to Johnson, the condition is not good. Well, it just, why isn't anyone telling Johnson the obvious? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, again, I don't think there's a conspiracy. I don't think, I think it's just, these are human beings who are dealing with this extraordinary Sort of and and painful moment and and they're the, they don't want to admit to themselves that the president is dead. This man who they admire and respect um, so much, um, but I think especially in the case of Kenny O'Donnell, it's also they don't want to they can't accept the idea that Lyndon Johnson is now the mm-hmm. the, the president. So uh, the, one of the you know one of the things that that um, I I did in the book was. Um, was we spent, I spent a lot of time focusing on this period in Parkland Hospital from 12:35 or 12:37 until Johnson leaves at around 1:26. Um, but I think it's really a critical in understanding the story and all the different dimensions that, uh, of it. And uh, and I challenged the timeline of the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission says that Kennedy was declared dead at one o'clock, and mm-hmm. Johnson was told that he was uh, dead at one twenty. Well, that in and of itself was interesting, is that's the official Warren Commission uh, conclusion, and even that begs the question, why Why did it take them 20 minutes to tell Lyndon Johnson when he's only a few feet away? You know, Robert Kennedy found out that Kennedy was dead. The Secret Service in Washington, D.C. knew that Kennedy was dead. Just about everybody at Parkland Hospital knew that Kennedy was dead. But the one person who more than anyone else needs to know about Kennedy's condition is kept in the dark. Mm-hmm. And that's Lyndon Johnson. Um, but um, uh, what, uh, I think that, and I also think that doctors were stopped working on Kennedy um, at least five to seven, maybe eight minutes before one o'clock. That, um, and I, I came to that conclusion because um, uh, the Father Huber, who is the priest who was called to administer the last rites, mm-hmm. the, there's, a, there's a question about when he arrived in the hospital. Most people have him arriving about a few, a minute or two before one o'clock to deliver the last rites. It seems Dave Powers, who was standing outside the um, emergency room was keeping track of all the people who were coming in. He was looking at their name tags and writing them down and the time that they arrived. Dave Powers was the scheduler. Dave Powers, the guy who kept Kennedy on time, was constantly checking his watch to see when things were going on. And he turned over to Manchester and in the Manchester papers are notes that he took that he wrote down when people arrived. And he estimated that Father Huber arrived at around 12.50. And that's significant because when Father Huber walks into the operating room, the emergency room, he says that he sees Kennedy laying under a white sheet mm-hmm. uh, with his foot sticking out. And he, his foot is so white, he says, this man has no blood. But, but, what, but what it means is that when Father Huber arrives and he walks into the room, Kennedy is clearly dead and doctors have stopped working on him. And um, Mrs. Kennedy insists on having the last rites of the Catholic Church administered before the official time of his death. So um, but that just what that means is the, the gap between when it was clear that Kennedy was dead and when Johnson was told actually grows wider. Um, but the other thing is, I think it's also clear that Johnson, when he when he told the Warren Commission, which he did in his written statement that he was informed of Kennedy's death at 120, is also stretching the truth a little bit. It's Emory Roberts uh, in his testimony says that he was the first person to inform Kennedy, uh, Johnson that Kennedy was dead, and he did it around 112 or 113, mm-hmm. and that Kenny O'Donnell came in a few minutes later and repeated the same message. But for Johnson, again, Johnson uh, wants. 
Emery, in his mind, Emery Roberts has no standing. Mm-hmm. He wants to hear it from Kenny O'Donnell. He wants to hear it from Kennedy's closest aide. So uh, I think Johnson's being um, disingenuous when he says that he that he heard it first from Kenny O'Donnell and he heard it at 120. I think he actually heard it much earlier. But but this the, the dynamic that you see developing already is this tension between the Kennedy and the Johnson camps that becomes such a dominant theme in the book and obviously becomes part of what I'm trying to do here is sort of show how in this first day, in the first 24 hours of the Johnson presidency, you're seeing the footprint of what would become uh, the Johnson presidency, both the, the bright promise of the presidency and also the tragic failures of the presidency. And I think you see, you see Johnson in many ways being brilliant and masterful in his handling of the assassination. But you also see in this decision and his, in the way he was sort of somewhat devious and disingenuous in the way he, um, he dealt with, um, when he was told that Kennedy was dead, um, you also see the, the the beginnings. I think the planting of the seeds of the credibility gap that would undermine the moral authority of his presidency. Mm-hmm. And so, after he's informed about 120, roughly 120, that uh, JFK is dead, then does he decamp for Love Field? Yes. Yes. Once he once he is told officially that Kennedy is dead. Uh, it's clear he went, he he realizes that he needs to get out of the hospital, get back to Air Force One. So within a few minutes, um, he um, the Secret Service again surround him, uh, take him out to an unmarked police car, and uh, uh, they leave for uh, for Parkland Hospital. And originally, some of the had motorcycle escorts they turned the sirens on, and Johns was like, "Turn those sirens off." They just they wanted they wanted as little attention as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was chaotic. I mean, the, the other thing you have to sort of understand is just the chaos and the confusion in the first hours after the assassination. And when when they leave Parkland Hospital, they get in. He, John, they they separate Johnson from Ladybird, and the Secret Service does that because they want to confuse. If there's another sniper out there, um, they want to confuse them. They use Ladybird as a decoy. Um, mm-hmm. put her in a different car, had her sitting up in a different car, whereas Johnson is sort of bent over out of sight in the back seat of another mm-hmm. car. Um, so the idea, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, they, they clearly are still thinking that there's someone out there trying to shoot him. So they race to Air Force One, and as soon as they get on the plane, Rufus Youngblood is saying, they'll close the blinds. They close all the blinds on the, all the shades on the plane, because they're, they're again, they think there's a gunman out there trying to take a shot at Lyndon Johnson. And um, uh, and then the the big issue on the Air Force One is is the oath, whether to take the oath. And what's interesting is I was writing this right around the time that uh, Barack Obama uh, was taking the oath. Yeah. And what I was struck by in, in writing the story was how when Johnson gets back to Air Force One, the question no one knows the answer to is. Is is he president, mm-hmm. or does he have to take the oath before he becomes president? Mm-hmm. I mean, is the oath simply a uh, a, a, a ceremonial play a ceremonial role, or can he not exercise the powers of the presidency until he takes the oath of office? And no one really knows. He doesn't know. So um, Johnson makes the call to uh, the attorney general, and again, this becomes a major source of every story, every conversation between Johnson and Kenny O'Donnell, and Johnson between Ro- and Robert Kennedy has two versions. There's the Johnson version, and there's the Kennedy version. You, you wonder uh, if, if they were sort of a part of the same conversation. And Johnson claimed that um, that he called Robert Kennedy to find out about the oath, whether he should take the oath, and that Robert Kennedy insisted that he uh, take the oath of office and take it as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. The Kennedy people argue that that it was it was just incredibly insensitive of Johnson to call Robert Kennedy, whose brother had just been assassinated. That's an issue that would have and was worked out at a lower level as the Assistant Attorney General uh, Nicholas Katzenbach, who who eventually made the you know, sort of played the key role in, in getting them the oath and, and um, uh, facilitating that. But So it was, in their mind, it was insensitive for Johnson to call RFK, and it was clear in their mind that Johnson, according to Robert Kennedy's account, Johnson called him and, and clearly wanted to take the oath of office, and, and Kennedy was just 
uh, just didn't know what to do mm-hmm. um, and just went along with what he was clear to him was Johnson's wishes. Mm-hmm. And what what I found was um, uh, an interview that William Manchester did with John McCone, which sheds a lot of light on this. John McCone was the head of the CIA, and when after Kennedy is shot, um, he calls RFK, and RFK says, come out to my house. RFK was out in Hickory Hill in his house in, uh, in uh, Virginia. And uh, the CIA is right there. It's a, it's a five-minute drive away. So McCone goes over. McCone is walking around with RFK um, on the grounds of the house when the phone call comes in from Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. And uh, McCone, who's no friend of Lyndon Johnson's, uh, actually supports Johnson's version of the story. Mm-hmm. And this is an interview that no one, Man- Manchester chose not to use and, and no one else had access to. Manchester says that Robert Kennedy um, believed that because there was a possibility of an international conspiracy, it was important for Lyndon Johnson to take the oath as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So I think what you have taking place here is Lyndon Johnson doing what he does best, which is manipulating people. Mm-hmm. Johnson clearly wanted to take the oath of office uh, because he wanted to make sure there was no ambiguity about whether or not he was president. And he manipulates Kennedy into telling him what he wants to hear. <laughs> and then he goes around and tells everybody on Air Force One that it was RFK's idea that he mm-hmm. take the oath of office and take it as soon as possible. And it's true, that's what RFK said to him. But I think RFK said it to him only because it was obvious to him that LBJ wanted to take the oath. Mm-hmm. And the other sort of the other sort of the next dramatic moment in this story is the assassination of the president was not a national crime in 1963. It was governed by local laws. Yeah, this is very, this in, is a very interesting thing. I, I was hoping yeah. we would talk about this. Go ahead. Yeah, in Dallas, uh, it, the law was that that um, autopsies um, of um, murder victims, crime victims, had to be performed by a local um, uh, coroner. Uh-huh. So um, the Kennedy people. They, the Kennedy body has been it's enwrapped, it's been placed into a coffin, and uh, Mrs. Kennedy is there. She refuses to leave her husband's side. Uh, Kenny O'Donnell, Dave Powers, the Secret Service contingent, uh, General Godfrey McHugh, they're all there with the body, um, and they're ready to go back to um, uh, Air Force One. They think Johnson has gone back to Love Field boarded his own plane, Air Force Two, and is already on his way back to um, to Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and they they are going to take the body back on the same plane they came in on, uh, and uh, fly back to Washington. So they start to leave, and a local corridor comes and stands in front of them and says, "You can't take that body." And there was there were there was a certain sort of shock. Like, what do you mean we can't take the body? This is the President of the United States of America. And they said, yes, but this is a local crime. As far as we're concerned, this is just another murder. Mm-hmm. You know, the autopsy has to be performed here. So there's some, and there's a big Dallas cop standing there, too. Um, so there's something that the, the, the uh, President's party is trying to negotiate this, and it's clear the coroner is not, and a local justice, are simply not going to give any ground. So they, uh, O'Donnell and um, Powers and the Secret Service agents huddle, and they're like, we're getting out of here. We're, we're taking the body. So they steal the body. <laughs> they essentially have a force to steal the body. The secret, these well-armed Secret Service agents uh, surround the coffin, and they just push their way through um, and, uh, and out of the hospital and load the uh, the body um, into a um, uh, awaiting a uh, I think they put it in an ambulance and and Mrs Kennedy and the whole crowd and they and they race toward Love Field and this is important because you realize they they are racing to um, what was Air Force One which is now just the Kennedy plane um, to fly back to Washington they think the Dallas police are right behind them. I mean, Kenny O'Donnell is petrified that they're going to get on to Air Force One. The Dallas police are going to pull up, surround the plane, board the plane, and drag the body off the plane. So he wants to get back to Air Force One, and the minute they get on that plane, that door is going to shut, and they're going to take off. Uh-huh. So what happens? They get back to Air. They get back to Air Force One. They get on the plane. There's a photograph, a dramatic photograph, of them carrying the coffin up the steps, heavy coffin. They strap it in, and Ken O'Donnell says to Godfrey McHugh, who was President Kennedy's military aide uh, uh, and Air Force aide, who was essentially in charge of Air Force One, he said, "Let's get this plane on uh, in the air." So they don't know that Lyndon Johnson is on the plane. Uh-huh. Lyndon Johnson is now in the presidential bedroom. So. McHugh 
um, races to the front of the plane, and there's all this confusion. He says to Captain Swindell, let's get, we're taking off now, and Swindell says, I can't, I have orders not to. And uh, McHugh is just furious. He can't understand why his, his orders are being um, uh, denied. And um, so he's racing, he's, he's, he's told that, that uh, the president, he has orders um, from the president to stay to, to stay on the ground, and McHugh, who has a heavy French accent, uh, says to him, "My president is back there in that coffin," mm-hmm. and this reverberates through the plane. It's unclear whether Lyndon Johnson heard it or not, but lots of other people in the plane did, and. Uh, so McHugh is walking up and down the plane. He's looking for Lyndon Johnson. Now, this is there was a um, oral history. Godfrey McHugh did an oral history for the Kennedy Library back in 1978, and um, I was up at the Kennedy Library doing research one week. And, and you talk about sort of just being your lucky day. Mm-hmm. I was uh, doing research, and the um, uh, one of the archivists came up to me and said, "You know, today is really your lucky day because." Uh, we just this morning declassified, uh, just got back from the Navy and the Air Force, a, uh, and the oral history that Godfrey, Godfrey McHugh did in 1978. So I, I was the first person to get access to this oral history. And, and in this oral history, McHugh tells this story about what's taking place, and it's the first time anyone has heard it. And what he says is he's going up and down the plane. He's been up and down the plane twice, and he doesn't see Lyndon Johnson. And at one point, he runs into Godfrey. He runs into uh, Mac Kildoff, who's the press secretary. And McHugh says to Kildoff, "Lyndon Johnson's not on this plane." And Kildoff says, "Well, you go back and tell that six foot four Texan that he's not Lyndon Johnson." So McHugh's going up and down the plane. He doesn't see Johnson anywhere. So um, he realizes that the only place he hasn't looked is in the presidential bedroom. So he opens the door and he looks in the bedroom and there's no Lyndon Johnson. But the only place now that's left is the bathroom on in the bedroom, in the presidential bedroom. So according to McHugh, he walks over and he opens up the bathroom door and he finds Lyndon Johnson crawled up in a ball <laughs> on the floor with his hands over his face crying. It's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. They're going to kill us all. They're going to kill us all. Um, now the thing is, you know, and it's, you know, it's in the book I sort of deal with this. It's it's impossible now to know whether a confrontation between two men, both of whom are dead, actually took place. McHugh, you know, he detested Lyndon Johnson. Um, I, I and and his account of Johnson being completely unglued uh, and hysterical are so contrary to what everyone else. Um, uh, how everyone else described Lyndon Johnson in the hours after the assassination is that it, that it makes it hard to believe, but it's also hard to believe that McHugh would just make the story up. And not only did he tell it to um, uh, in this oral history of the Kennedy Library, I went down to Washington to the National Archives and and went through the um, the House Select Committee on Assassinations back in 1978, and I found that McHugh had done a interview with one of the investigators for the House Select Committee on Assassinations and told them essentially the same story. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, so I end up, you know, in the book, I essentially lay all the information out about what I think are the pros and the cons of whether or not what the story is true or not, and leave it up to the readers to decide whether or not it's true. I just, it's impossible to make a final judgment. But uh, once they realize that Johnson is on board, um, and that Johnson is keeping the plane on the ground in order to take the oath. O'Donnell's arguing with Johnson. She wants to get the plane off the ground. Johnson insists that not only that Jeff take the oath, but that Robert Kennedy insisted on him taking the oath. Um, and then you have, and so you have that famous photograph, which I think is, you know, an indication of one of of Johnson's brilliance and, and, and choreographing the images. And Johnson understood that the key message that he needed to communicate in the hours after the assassination was continuity. The American mm-hmm. government continued. The president was dead, but he was now in charge, and the functioning of the government uh, would uh, would continue. So, and he had asked he asked Mrs. Kennedy to be in the photograph, and O'Donnell said, "And you can't do that. You can't ask her after all she's been through. You can't put her through this." 
And uh, but he said, Johnson said, no, I, I, you know, I want her in this picture. Go ask her. And uh, someone back to Mrs. Kennedy said, you know, Johnson wants you to stand this photograph. You don't have to do this. And she says, no, it's the least that I can do. So I think when I see that photograph now, I think of, I think of it. It reflects both Johnson's brilliant choreographing of this uh, this theme of continuity, but it also is a sort of an indication of, of the grace and the dignity and the strength of Mrs. Kennedy, who um, uh, the who is standing there still covered in the bones and the brain and the blood of her, her dead husband, but has the wherewithal uh, and um, to to uh, pose for that picture, understanding how important it was uh, for Johnson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So Johnson actually takes the oath I- about two thirty. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Two. Yeah, I think it's roughly around two thirty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then, the plane takes off about three minutes later. That's right. And then exactly, uh, they fly back to Washington. They fly back to Washington. They're in the air for about two hours. Johnson makes a number of phone calls. It's on the plane ride back that he hears the name Lee Harvey Oswald for the first time. And, mm-hmm. and Johnson is and, – and Oswald does not have a typical biography. Uh, and Johnson's very worried. Not, he's worried both uh, that Oswald may have some – there may be some international implications. But he's also worried that even if not, just the simple fact that Oswald had been in the Soviet Union – that he's worried about this McCarthyite reaction that he'll be that in his first days as president he'll be forced into a confrontation with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he calls Rose Kennedy um, when they land. The other interesting story and the dynamic between the Kennedys and the Johnsons when they land at um, in um, at Dulles Field uh, in at six o'clock Eastern Time uh, that evening. As they, uh, as they're coming in, Johnson again, this would be the first time the world would be seeing Lyndon Johnson as president. Mm-hmm. And Johnson wanted, again, to choreograph the image. He wanted, uh, he made it clear that he wanted the president's body to be taken off, and then he would escort, uh, Mrs. Kennedy behind the body, uh, off the, off the plane. So mm-hmm. there would be some kind of a lift that would come up and remove the President Kennedy's body, and then that would be taken away. Then the stairs would come up, and then Mrs. Johnson would escort Mrs. Kennedy off the plane. So the world, the first image the world would see, it was all the the national media was there, would be, again, the slain president, the new president, with the widow providing the transition between the two. Mm-hmm. But the Kennedy people have want nothing to do with Lyndon Johnson. You know, they're drinking all the way back on the plane when they're drowning their sorrows, which is, you know, perfect, which is understandable. And they're telling old stories about the past, but they're also incredibly bitter about Lyndon Johnson. They're angry that some Kennedy people, especially Mac Kildoff and General Clifton, are working with Johnson and helping Johnson. At one point, uh, Clifton went back and uh, Kenny O'Donnell said to him uh, uh, something about, why don't you go work for your, go, go work for your new boss or some mm-hmm. dismissive comment about how he, is, he had transferred his loyalty so quickly to Lyndon Johnson. They were telling stories about Johnson and, and, and ridiculing him. Um, so the story that, that the Kennedy people have always told is that, um, that it was a spontaneous decision for them to leave uh, when they landed at, at Dulles, instead of having this very carefully choreographed um, uh, image of Johnson escorting Lady, uh, uh, Mrs. Kennedy, what happens, and you see in the footage, is this, um, it was like a food container with a, uh, a military guard comes up and takes the, the coffin, and the Kennedy people jump on there. Mrs. Kennedy is there. Robert Kennedy had come through the front of the plane, walked right through the plane, and escorted with them. But the whole Kennedy group essentially rides down with the bomb body hops in the back of an ambulance uh, and and rides and leaves so by the time Lyndon Johnson um, gets to the back of the plane the Kennedy people are gone mm-hmm. um, and uh, Robert Kennedy and Johnson's furious about this um, uh, he was furious that Bobby Kennedy pushed his way down the aisle of the plane, walked right past him without even acknowledging him, and went to the back of the plane where Jackie was. And um, he just thought this was so disrespectful. And the Kennedy people said, you know, it was all spontaneous, which is perfectly understandable. They're, they're very emotional that Bobby simply wanted to be with Jackie, and, and he didn't see uh, Lyndon Johnson, which is hard to believe when you're talking, you know, with a plane, a six foot four guy standing on a plane, uh, it's pretty hard to miss. But, but, um, 
they argued that they what they have said is that when they when they were standing there and the, the the guard came up and they're ready to take the body off, Mrs. Kennedy said she didn't want to leave her husband, so they made this last minute spontaneous decision mm-hmm. to jump on board, and they didn't know that Lyndon Johnson wanted to choreograph these images. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, in the National Archives and the and uh, the papers of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, I found an interview with one of the Kennedy Secret Service agents who said that about ten minutes before they landed. Someone came through and told them all to gather near the back of the plane, uh, so they could escort as quickly as uh, leave the plane as quickly as possible. So it's clear that this was actually a, a thought-out strategy. They mm-hmm. simply did not want they did not want Lyndon Johnson to um, uh, they didn't want to let him use the president's body. And Mrs. Kennedy, well, uh, for his political purposes. I was going to say they had taken, they had stolen the body once, so it was. that's right. They stole it. That's right. Yeah, they stole, stole it a second time. But yeah. I think one of the things I say in the book is that you know the the, the Kennedy. Their, their profound grief is understandable, but their sense of entitlement is not. Yeah. And I, uh, Kenny O'Donnell is shrewd enough to know what Johnson needed yeah. uh, when they arrived at, at Dulles. Yeah. Uh, and they willfully denied him the image that he needed to convey. And he is now the President of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I found that. Um, Inexcusable. Yeah, yeah, no. I would love to ask you what happened next, but we've taken up a huge amount of your time. Okay. And you know, I, I could, I, the, 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 the first days of the Kennedy administration are fascinating. I mean, of the Johnson administration are fascinating. And Johnson as a personality, I think we could have an entire show about him because he was a man of such, uh, such, such contradiction and, and uh, such ability and and such sort of. So many tragic flaws. I mean, just, yeah. he's really an outsized figure. I mean, you never really could know what was going to come out of his mouth. I, you have some terrific quotes in the book, and I hope people read it um, about uh, Johnson saying things like, "The one that comes to mind is, I'd rather have my pecker cut off." The doctor asked him to stop smoking, and he said, "I'd rather right. have my pecker <laughs> cut off." Uh, but you know, some actually some clever things come out of other people's mouths too. I remember there's a good quote in the book about Jackie calling uh, Lyndon and Lady Bird. Johnson, um, I think it's Senator Cornpone and Lady yeah. Porkchop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that doesn't really put her in a very good light. But uh, nonetheless, the book is obviously full of uh, fascinating outsized characters. You couldn't make this stuff up, um, Steve. And it's it's a ter- it's a terrific book. Let me ask you this: our traditional yeah. final question on new books in history. What is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, the idea, what I may do is um, uh, do another, you know, my original idea was to do a series of case studies. The next case study that I would like to develop into a book and ideally into a documentary would be about Roosevelt and Pearl Harbor. So it would be uh, mm-hmm. the same concept, 24 hours, mm-hmm. uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, and the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a ter- it's a terrific idea. And when the book comes out, uh, we'll have you back on the show and we'll look forward to seeing the History Channel special that's coming up. When is it going to be shown again? About Sunday night, October 18th at 9 o'clock Eastern. It's, uh, as we say in television, check local listings. Check local <laughs> listings. And let me say that the, the book that we've been talking about today is The Kennedy Assassination, 24 Hours After, Lyndon B. Johnson's Pivotal First Day as President. Uh, the author is Steve Gillen. Steve, thanks very much for being on the show. Marshall, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, great. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Steve Gillen about his new book, The Kennedy Assassination, 24 Hours After, Lyndon Johnson's Pivotal First Day as President. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.